Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Today, I will maybe more or less wrap up our, ser- our series on divine healing. And uh, next week, of course, Christopher Alam will be here, and we'll see where the Lord takes us after that. But we have for several weeks been looking at healing, supernatural healing, faith, healing by faith. And uh, we started with a message, actually started with a healing service after a message that really didn't have anything to do with healing. And then uh, there was a message on healing miracles. There was a message on healing covenant. There was a Holy Ghost service. And there was a message on faith for healing. And finally last week, or not finally, but most recently last week, a message on the faith Jesus looks for. And this focused on Jesus' interaction with the centurion whose servant was, was near death. It was needed healing. And Jesus offered to come heal him. And he said, no, uh, you don't need to do that. Just say the word, because I understand authority. And this was the faith Jesus was looking for. Jesus made a big deal uh, out, of, out of faith in many, many instances, uh, the re- recorded instances. You know, we, we don't have every single detail of every healing uh, Jesus did. Uh, we don't even have every single detail of every healing the Bible records. We know uh, from the closing of the book of John that Jesus did a lot more than shows up in the book. But uh, he also... Uh, when he did all these healings, we don't get every single detail of every conversation, but in at least half of the miracles, the healing miracles that he did, he himself pointed out the role of the person who received healing, the role of their faith in getting healed. Your faith has made you whole. Be it unto you according to your faith. So faith was a big deal. This was a message Jesus very much made a point of getting across people. But then he said of this guy, I have not seen such great faith. In all of Israel. This was the what? This was the man who said, you don't need to come lay hands on him. I don't need a physical appearance. I don't need your physical presence in my house. Just speak the word. And this, I contend, is where Jesus wants us to be today. Simply to receive the things he's promised, to to see the manifestations of the things he already accomplished for us by receiving him, by receiving his word, taking him at his word. Uh, Now, Today, I want to talk about what is perhaps the greatest roadblock that we encounter when it comes to receiving healing, actually when it comes to receiving anything from God. And that roadblock roadblock is sin. Specifically, it is the sense or the belief that even though God has made provision for our healing through the finished work of Christ, we somehow aren't eligible. We certainly aren't deserving of healing because we are aware of our sin. So let's get a couple of things out of the way first. Lay some uh, doctrinal groundwork here. One is that, yes, there absolutely is a connection between sin and sickness. But that's not the same thing that all sickness and disease is brought on as a result of a specific sin. I don't think any reputable Bible scholar believes, for instance, that sickness was in the Garden of Eden. I think the vast majority of scholars, no matter where they land on gifts of healing and healing today and, uh, you know, a modern-day activity of the Holy Spirit, laying on of hands, doesn't matter where they land on that. 
I think all of them would more or less agree that when God created the earth and put man in the garden, there was no sickness. That sickness came into mankind, came into the earth as a result of what? The fall of mankind. Original sin, right? And uh, even then, it's not the same thing as saying you sinned Therefore, your punishment is you will be sick. I want you to look at what was said here. The setup, of course, God created uh, the world, uh, created everything in the world, and finally created man and put man and woman in the garden and gave them dominion over the earth, right? He set them very specifically above every order of creation. He said, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all of it. Now, obviously, built into that is God has dominion over man, but as long as you are in your proper relationship under me, everything in the earth is for you. You're to be the lords of this earth, the bosses of this earth, right? This is for you. But Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord, com Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of this tree that I'm telling you not to eat, you will die. Notice that that is different, and it is a super important difference. He's not saying, if you eat the fruit of this tree, I will kill you. It's more like a warning. This is poison. It will kill you. So don't eat it. Now, of course, we know they ate of the tree. And uh, I also want to point out, when we're talking about taking God as his word, at his word, this isn't in my notes, but I, I, I sh it should have been. You remember the serpent came, the very subtle, sneaky serpent came and said to Eve, what? Did, has the Lord really said that you can't eat all this fruit? And Eve said, what? Well, we can eat of almost all the fruit. But he did say not to eat this one. He, we can't touch it or eat it or we'll die. And then what did the serpent say? You won't die. You'll just become like God. This is the same tactic the devil uses today. The first place he will try to get you to abandon God and his word is by stirring up doubt about what God has said. If we are going to take God at his word, we have to know his word. And if we don't know his word, we are... We are really opening ourselves up. Didn't God say cleanliness is next to godliness? Didn't God say God helps those who help themselves? Well, I don't know. Well, if we don't know those things aren't in the Bible, we can get wrapped up in legalistic and everything else. So he comes at, he's testing Adam and Eve's knowledge of what God has said. Did God really say you can't eat this? Yes, he really said it. Okay, he said it. Trust me, he didn't mean it. This is the second place he'll stir up doubt. All right, you know what the Bible says. But let me give you examples of my own life where God didn't keep that promise. He tries to stir up doubt regarding the character of God, trustworthiness of God. And this worked. Genesis uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. This is after they took and ate of the fruit. 
in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That first line is probably better rendered, cursed is the earth because of you. I created you and gave you dominion over it uh, as long as you obey. You're blessed as long as you're obeyed. But when you heeded the voice of the serpent, you essentially transmitted your dominion to him. You transferred the lordship of this earth from yourself to the deceiver. That is why Satan is called the God of this world. He tricked us out of our inheritance. Now, we understand, at least I hope we do, and maybe where we'll go after, for Christo, after Christopher Alam is here, maybe we'll take a closer look at the authority of the believer. But a big part of what Jesus did in his redemptive work was not simply to save us from hell, important as that is, but to restore that authority to us, that dominion to us, to we who are believers. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, we understand that... Uh, If we think about that, the authority that man had in the garden, everything under his feet, is where Christ died to get us back to. And it is a process. But all that right now is to say that sickness is prevalent on the earth because sin is prevalent on the earth. All of these curses, all of the things that make life hard are an outgrowth of the sin nature. They are not specific punishments for sin. Remember, when God said, cursed is the earth because of you, he's not saying, ah, you did what I told you not to, kapow, the ground is cursed, you are cursed, this is going to be hard, you made me mad, I'm bright. He's saying, look what you did. As long as you were submitted to me, your uh, stewardship of this earth meant good. It meant rest, it meant pleasure, but now you've transferred it to him. He's, you're going to find him to be a bad God. It's not God cursing the earth in anger. It's God lamenting the curse that man has turned the earth into because he bowed the knee to temptation and the serpent. Big difference, right? Now, so sickness is prevalent on the earth because sin is prevalent on the earth. None of us are born free from this infection called the sin nature. It exists in our physical bodies, in our members. Therefore, we as human beings are susceptible to sickness. Why? Because we're susceptible to sin. Since this nature exists in us, uh, the, the temptation itself is a reality. Jesus had some really harsh things to say about this, and I'm going to come to it in just a minute. But naturally, since the sin nature eventually and if you are exempt from this, I would really love to talk to you. But so far, everybody I've ever met in my entire life confirms this. If you are born with the sin nature, somehow, somewhere, eventually, this will produce sinful acts in your life. And since there is a genuine connection between sin and sickness, sometimes when somebody is suffering, we look for reasons why, what did they do to allow this into their life? 
And the greatest exhibit of this in the Bible is Job's friends. Job was an upright man, fearing God. And when his friends, these wise men, came to visit him, after they sat in stunned silence for a week, they started speaking, and eventually the conversation just keeps rolling around to the same thing. Job, we like you, buddy. You're great. You're one of us, but come on. The longer you quit denying whatever sin you did, the longer it's going to be before you're possibly healed. We know that bad things don't happen to good people, so what did you do? And Job's like, that can't be what this is about. And he was right. It wasn't. I could do a whole other message on Job and probably should as part of this healing thing. So we'll come, maybe come back to Job. But when we kind of do the same thing, something bad happens to somebody good, somebody good gets sick, we look for some reason, don't we? Am I the only one? And what are we really doing here? We're, we're, there's, there's a little bit of fear involved there because we're looking for something so that we can cling to and say, well, they did this, I don't, so that won't happen to me. It's this self-justification, it's this self-protection. That's not how it works either. It, because every one of those scenarios means you did something specific, so this specific thing happened to you. I'm not saying that never happens. I'm just saying the pattern, the thing we need to be aware of is we are susceptible to sickness the same re, for the same reason that we are susceptible to sinning. It's because of the sin nature. Now, uh, Jesus actually confirms this, by the way, this connection between sin and sickness. And he does it more than once. My favorite example is probably the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof by his friends. Do you remember this? Uh, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Now, it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold... Men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, how did he see their faith? Was he gazing into the spirit realm and saw some nebulous thing that represented faith? No, what was their, their action? of being so determined to get this man into the presence of Jesus that they're taking the tiles off the roof and lowering down. He saw their faith. He said to him, now, is there any doubt in anybody's mind why they had brought this man to Jesus? He's paralyzed, and they wanted him healed. So Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Is that what he was there for? Did they say, thank you, then pull him back up on the roof? We got what we came for? And the scribes and Pharisees, verse 21, began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of, God, Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Now there are two very significant aspects to this miracle in this conversation. One was to demonstrate to the legalists that he did indeed have the power to forgive sins. 
because anyone can say it. And they were right. If anyone else had just come in and said, hey, your sins are forgiven you, they'd be like, who are you to forgive sins? It takes, there's certain authority involved in this. When a man sins, he sins against God, so who but God can forgive sins? And he was pointing out that it was easier to simply pronounce forgiveness. If I say he's forgiven, you don't know if he's forgiven or not. But if I say be healed, you know if he's healed. So which is easier to say? It's easier to say you're forgiven. I'm going to show you that I have the power to forgive by showing you that I have the power, the authority to heal. Rise, take up your bed and walk, and he did. Now, there might have still been some legalists who said, that doesn't necessarily mean he's forgiven, but it settled the case for most of the people there. Here's the other thing. The other reason this was a significant conversation and miracle is for the, for the sake of the paralytic man himself. His friends demonstrated faith. Jesus knows what they want. He knows what they're there for. He knows what the paralytic wants. But like many, the paralytic himself may very well have thought, I don't deserve healing. I desire healing. And at least my friends believe Jesus can heal me. But there's this doubt. Is it going to be for me? Or, it, or when I go up to get healing, when I'm finally in the presence of Jesus, is he going to say, son, this is the reason you're in this bed. So Jesus, always knowing from the Spirit what is in the way of somebody receiving healing, says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now arise, take up your bed and walk. You see how he removed the roadblock first. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, very important New Testament reference for healing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I don't want to belabor this because we are now 45 minutes from game time. But I'm kidding. when we read this passage, we got to be careful not to make a formula out of that. Now, I want to respect Scripture, you understand. But Jesus healed any number of ways. I don't think it's, but I've heard it said, look, if you are an unbeliever, then somebody needs to lay hands on you. If you're a believer, it needs to be the elders anointing you with oil, and they can't initiate it. You have to initiate it by calling them. It's not a formula. He's saying if you're sick, there is healing available. And this is, this is you know, one of the many ways God ministers healing. But here's the other thing. If we're going to look at it as a formula, is that also the formula of forgiveness, for forgiveness? Because the pair of faith will save the sick, and God will raise him up, and if he's forgiven sins. So if you want your sins forgiven, you better have the elders anoint you with oil too, because that's how God forgives sins. We know that's not necessarily how it works. No, this is all about healing right here. I heard a terrible exegesis of this passage by a well-known pastor, a, you know, worldwide radio minister, and he's, he's brilliant at making Old Testament characters come alive and, may, and really has uh, blessed me over the years. But when he gets on issues of uh, miracles, charismatic, modern, you know, infilling of the Holy Spirit, he just, I just want to punch him in the teeth is all. And he was saying, first of all, that 
What you need to understand about this passage is that when they laid hands on him and anointed him with oil, they are applying medicine. That's what it meant to anoint with oil. They were doing everything physically in their power. Anointing oil is just like putting Bactine or something on a wound. Uh, And it says that prayer of faith Save the sick. I don't know how he convoluted that one. God will raise him up. But then he came back, and if there's any sins, he's forgiven him. He says, this is important because this verse is clearly not talking about praying for everybody that's sick and expecting to see them healed. This is only for people who are sick because of sin. In this case, we're talking about a person who is sick because they are in sin, and through the elders and the application medicine and offering of forgiveness, then they receive their healing. It's not for healing across the board. So, and and again, you're probably thinking the same thing I am. Who ultimately is not sick because of sin? This is why sickness exists in the first place. So why is James talking about this? For the same reason Jesus said it. Look, if you go up in a prayer line, I'll bet you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I never like to be proved wrong in the middle of a message. You can just tell me later. But I'll bet most of you have experienced at least a little bit of this. You're up and come up here. If you've got sickness in your body, if you've got, uh, if you're fighting something, come up here and be healed. And you're like, boy, I really should have dealt with this sin first. Maybe you're not 100% convinced because you're feeling a little little bit of guilt. You're feeling a little bit of sin consciousness. So what, what James is saying here is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint him with oil, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and God will raise him up. Oh, and if you've committed any sins, don't let that get in the way of you receiving healing, because guess what? You're forgiven. Let's get that roadblock out of the way. Now, this is probably the most troubling one that I read in Scripture. When we talk about the connection between sin and sickness. And this is the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, the setup here, I'm not going to read through the whole first few verses, but you know, he's been 38 years, he's been lying there. 38 years. And Jesus has this brief conversation with him. And in John, this is John chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, after 38 years of lying there, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked pointed this out before, but this is a huge miracle. If you've been lying down for 38 years, even if your disease is immediately healed, there's a lot of work that needs to be going on in your body for you to be able to immediately stand up and walk. Muscle atrophy and wasting away and everything else. But he did. And that day was a Sabbath. <laughs> the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful, you for, lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, buddy, I hear what you're saying, but this is super important to me. And the same guy that made me stand up and walk after 38 years is the one who told me to carry my bed. So, buddy, I don't care what day it is, I'm carrying my bed. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, this is really what I want you to see, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, we can argue about whether, is Jesus saying, I remember the sin you did that made you sick for 38 years. 
so you better not do it again. But he healed him. That's good news, right? But is this what you want to hear from the man who just healed? 38 years. I'm almost that old. 38 years, this man paralyzed, sick to the point of not being able to walk. And Jesus has just delivered him. It's the best day of your life, clearly. And Jesus says, oh, and by the way, don't sin anymore. Otherwise, something worse might happen. Is that, is it just me or does that sound mean? How are you going to enjoy health and life with that hanging over you? And I don't mean that by, oh, shoot, now that I'm healthy, I want to go out and sin. I want to enjoy life. No, it's not that you can't enjoy life without sinning. It's would you or would you not be terrified that, oh, no, he didn't specify how big the sin had to be. What if I slip up? What if I accidentally sin? Am I going to go right back to lying by that pool? Can this possibly be what Jesus meant? That's torture. And it gets worse. Because, well, I'll read it. I got time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said... To those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever, whoops, where'd this go? You gotta be careful where you put your finger on these things, don't you? But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now this prior paralytic has to not only worry that he will do something that will cost him his healing, he has to worry that he will even experience a thought, a feeling, a desire to do something, even if he never acts on it. So what is Jesus saying? Everything Jesus said in this passage and other passages about sin about a worse thing coming upon you is based on the Old Covenant. It is driving home the whole point of the Old Testament, which is we are fundamentally unable to keep the law. Why? Because we were created fundamentally unable? No, because we abandoned God's law, God's one single law, and fell into sin and inherited a nature that God did not create us for. We cannot, if we are going to go through life if our experiencing the blessings that God promises depend on us keeping our end of the covenant, we're doomed. And we had, Jesus had thousands of years of history to, to back this up when he said it. All his teachings about purity and righteousness point toward our need for the cross for someone who can fulfill the law perfectly and do it on our behalf. 
I want you to look at one more healing. This is uh, John 9, the man born blind. And I love this whole chapter. I love this whole conversation, but I'm just going to point out one aspect of it today. John 9, chapter, sorry, John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. He anointed the eyes of the man with the clay and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him what? Now, they're demonstrating their cleverness, their familiarity with the Scripture and the connection. They understood the fall. They understood how the fall brought sin into man. And they understood the connection between person sins, that's why they're sick. But they wanted to know, is this a generational curse or is it something this man personally did? Now, it's kind of a silly question. He was born blind. So how could he be being punished with blindness for his sin? But they said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Interesting answer Jesus gives them, isn't it? Neither him nor his parents. Is that really what he meant then? Is Jesus saying that this man, had, although blind, has lived in sinless perfection? Is he saying that his parents lived in sinless perfection? Wouldn't this contradict what the scripture says about how all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned, including this blind man and his parents. Now, what's he, what he's saying is, you misunderstand the connection. It's not his sin or his parents' sin that brought this blindness on him. It's sin. It's because blindness exists, because sin exists. We are in a messed up world. The Scott Mills translation, if you read it, says, never mind the specifics of why he's blind. The healer is here. Let's focus on what starts now rather than every little detail that led up to this. But what Jesus says about sin also reminds us, listen, there is a connection under the old covenant. Don't sin anymore, because then you just open the door for another curse, another disease, another sickness. What's the good news for us? And you already know where I'm going. Before I get there, I will say very carefully, I've been, I've been watching a, a, a young preacher, just little bits and clips, who is very, making uh, very bold claims about sin and freedom from sin, and essentially saying, if you are still struggling, I, I don't throw this word around casually, but you're flirting with heresy when you say something like that. But the thing that makes it such a powerful argument is it's followed up with, what are you telling me? That your addiction, your temptation, your predispositions are stronger than God? Either God is God and stronger than all these things, or he's not. And if he is, and you're still struggling, then you're not saved. That's, that's bad math. It's unscriptural. Why do we know it's unscriptural? 
Well, Paul talks about the process of sanctification, doesn't he? Don't we read again and again that Paul himself went back and forth struggling with desires? Now, it's fine. It's one thing to say, look, I'm going to keep these desires under. I am going to exercise spiritual authority. And we will talk in more detail about this. I never want to be the guy that says, look, you can't beat sin anyway, so just sin all you want. That's not love. And I would question your, your salvation, if you're, if, especially if after any time at all of walking with Christ, your attitude for sin is that casual. We should always be, we move from faith to faith, glory to glory, victory to victory. And that's not just victory over poverty, not just victory over circumstances, not just victory over sickness. It's victory over sin. We get stronger in the faith, and we should invoke the power of God against our desires, our sinful desires, our very sin nature, just as we do against poverty, sickness, right? We don't, but we should. But we see that the renewing of the mind is a necessary process. And I hate to break it to you, as long as you inhabit this physical body, there will be remnants of the sin nature in your life. Remember what Jesus said. You know, when Paul talks about how important it is to keep the flesh under, that means the flesh is struggling against some things. And what Jesus is saying this goes so deep. You don't understand how badly you need a Savior. It's not because of the bad things you've done. It's because of how bad you are fundamentally by nature. Your nature is corrupted. Why? Because you're patting yourself on the back for not cheating on your wife, but you are still attracted. You are still tempted to cheat on your wife. You're patting yourself on the back for not strangling that guy to death, but you wish you could. The only reason you haven't is because there's a law against it. Jesus is saying, if you were the way you were created to be, there would be no need for the law because you weren't created with desires for somebody other than your wife. You weren't created with hatred and anger against your brother. So you're only doing so much good by not killing, by not cheating, by not committing adultery. And you should continue that struggle and should continue to gain victory over all evil desires. But the evil desires themselves point the out the fact that you still need a Savior. The good news is we have one. And the saving work is already done. Praise and worship team, come up here while I wrap this up. If as long as we think that we have to be manifestly not just free of sinful acts, but free of sinful desires before we are qualified and eligible for the promises of God, included healing, we are always, well, not always, we are, it's always going to be a struggle to receive. We'll always be scratching our head. Did I get it? Will I keep it? It's only when we understand that it is the completed work of Jesus Christ that qualifies us for all of it that we put ourselves in a position to receive it and believe it. It's because we stand before God not pretending that we don't have these desires, not pretending that we haven't blown it, but understanding that that's exactly why Jesus died in the first place, to take it all from us, to take it all on our behalf. Stand up with me. There remains one big question, at least one big question, and more can coming to my mind. I'm thinking, well, we may just continue this for a few weeks after Christopher Allen is here. But there's one big elephant in the room, I think, is 
when you hear this taught, when you read it, when you meditate on it, makes sense, you believe it, it's great news, it's liberating. So then we come to this question. Some of you already know what I'm thinking. Then why don't we see it manifested more often, more completely? That is probably where I'll go week after next. You don't want to miss it, do you? Meanwhile, let me do this first. The forgiveness that I'm talking about that opens the door and qualifies us, makes us eligible for the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of, for, uh, of healing, the blessing of provision, protection, deliverance, release from the curse. The forgiveness that we need for that, number one, is a need that is universally experienced. Nobody came into this world without a need for a savior. And number two, has only been provided through the finished work of Christ at the cross. You can't earn your way out of it. You can't, you can't even remember every way you offended God with every thought, word, and deed. You might remember every action you did that was wrong. You can't remember every thought, every word. And if you could, you still wouldn't be capable of undoing all those things. Ah, I've got 20,000 things in the bad column. I just have to have 20,001 things in the good column doesn't work. Jesus is the only way. And it's much, he makes it much more available than that. He says, all that good stuff that you think you have to do, all the makeup stuff, all the stuff that has to be done to pay for those sins, you're right, it needs to be paid. I'm paying it with my blood, with my life. If you want to get in on that and why you wouldn't, I have no idea. If you desire to receive that freedom, that forgiveness, which again includes the eligibility for all those other benefits, I need you to make, you need to make Jesus Christ your Lord. You need to be saved. And Paul writes, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I just need to know, is there anybody in here right now who just by, by a showing of your hand say, I'm making that confession today. I desire to give my heart to Christ to receive salvation. Jesus is my Lord. I believe he is risen from the dead, and I receive my salvation. I see a hand. Anybody else? By show of hands. Scott, I know that. I prayed that. Haven't lived it. Hasn't been at the core of my life. I know God loves me, but I sure haven't loved him. I'm, 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 I'm making that confession again. I'm rededicating. I'm recommitting myself to the God who saved me. Anybody? Can we pray this together as a congregation? Just repeat after me. Lord God, I know that in and of myself, I can do nothing to be good enough to earn your blessing. I need a Savior. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, shedding your blood, and for rising from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I receive that salvation. I receive that forgiveness. I receive everything that comes with it and declare that Jesus is my Lord. Thank you, Father, for loving me and saving me in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
Now, since we're all saved in here now, guess what? If there is a sickness, a disease, a pain, an injury in your body that you know God, it's, that's not what God has ordained for you. If perhaps forgiveness has been, unforgiveness has been troubling you, not unforgiveness, sin, lack of conviction of, of forgiveness, this is your day. And, we're, and once again, we're going to do this with a confession rather than a healing line. I want you to know. I speak this over you as a congregation. This is me virtually laying hands on you. And if you're watching this on video, and this is, this is speaking to you, this is for you too. This isn't some magic thing. This isn't just some ultra-charismatic expression. This is a, a confession of what the Word has already made clear. So let me speak this over you. And if you need healing in your body, receive this actively. Receive it now as if you were being anointed with oil, as if you were having hands laid on you, as it laid on you, as if Jesus himself were in the room. Amen? Child, you are forgiven. You are forgiven, and therefore you are free from everything sin brought into your life. Your sin does not please me. Your sin will never please me. I've given you the power over sin. Walk in it. Receive my strength to overcome the things that pull you down. Receive my strength to avoid the things that break my heart. But know that you are already forgiven. I have already purchased your forgiveness, and I've paid the highest price possible, the blood of Jesus Christ the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. It has already been shed. The debt has been paid. The healing has been purchased. It has your name on it. Receive it. I desire to see you healed. It's why I bought your healing. Receive it. Receive it. Don't wallow in that sin, and above all, don't wallow in that guilt. That's why I paid that price, to free you from it. Let me, let me make this clear. You have been delivered from sin, and every good thing that God is speaking over your life, He desires you to have it as much as He loves Jesus. You see that? The love between the Father and the Son is perfect, and He wants to see you. He sees you because you are in Him as His Son. He doesn't want you sick any more than He wants Jesus sick. So receive that forgiveness and receive that healing now, 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 in Jesus' name. Amen. And praise the Lord. Have we got a song to go out on? Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.